Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting uh, Devin Elder with DJE Texas Management. Uh, thank you, Devin. I appreciate your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Devin and his group uh, today control uh, over 2,000 units uh, in San Antonio, Texas. And Devin has been an experienced investor for many years, uh, you know, doing single family, multifamily as well for many years now. And today we are going to learn more about, um, you know, his advice and a lot of his experiences um, as uh, viewers may relate. Devin is a knowledgeable guest who has shared his advice uh, on many of uh, the podcasts and Devin runs his own podcast as well that viewers can listen to and take advantage. So thank you for your time today, Devin. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Look forward to digging uh, in. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, help us get started, Devin, as to, you know, how, how was your background and how you kind of came into real estate in general? You know, I think early on for me, it started out having an entre entrepreneurial older brother uh, that really kind of planted the seed. And then I chose a different path. I um, went to college and ended up going in to work for one of the larger employers in San Antonio where I live. Mm -hmm. And for a few years was really um, pleased with that. I think I, I hit kind of a golden era at this one employer in town where it was really enjoyable. And, and um, but after, it didn't take too many years for the, the shine to wear off. And um, I started to get disillusioned, <laughs> All right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of like my late twenties going, uh, geez, I don't have any heroes. You know, I'm in my late twenties and I'm, I'm seeing the guys that are 15 years older and I just didn't, I didn't have anybody that I felt like was a mentor that I wanted to copy. And I'd read books sure. like think and grow rich, rich dad, poor dad, four hour work week. And they, they, a, a recurring theme here is to find a model of what you want and to emulate it, whether it's anything, right? Sure, Lifestyle sure. or finance, fitness, et cetera. Find a model and copy them. And I couldn't find any models within um, the corporate world. I also was always, was always big into asking questions. How can I 3X my income? How can I 10X my income? Well, I'm sure. looking at this kind of corporate ladder going, boy, 10X in income is really going to require a radical shift, either stock options or it's not going to be this incremental promotion. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I just kind of ran into a, a dead end in the corporate world. It wasn't going to be the vehicle. And then at the back of my mind, I'd had this entrepreneurial brother my whole life that I'd seen go do all these things. I thought he was crazy half the time, but it was, it was there as a point of reference. Sure. Um, and then one day it was a real estate seminar that I went to and it was, you know, I was in my early thirties and I said, this is it. This is how I'm going to build wealth leave my corporate job. And it's been pedal to the metal ever since. 
<laughs> Interesting. Thank you. And I, I can relate to that story as well, David, like in, in uh, personally as well, like, you know, I would put out a spreadsheet and say that, okay, I'm earning X and your yearly increment is like three to 5%. And you're never going to get there. I mean, forget to, I mean, forget 10 X or three X, you can't even make two X sometimes, you know? Right. And some of the seniors that we see, you kind of almost crunch that, oh, I don't want to be him. You know, the amount of stress and responsibility that yes. they have is so much and the, the income is just not there. So it's, it's not appealing. And I can totally relate to that story. And also that, you know, I was doing a lot more like simple cash flowing houses and I could put down my spreadsheet and say that, okay, if I do 10 or 15 more houses, I can tangibly see my path to it, right? And that that was also quite motivating for me. So uh, now, Devin, uh, back to your story. How did you uh, kind of like get started into, let's say, uh, was that like the flipping houses you did or was that a buy and hold that you did initially before transitioning to multifamily? It was single family buy and hold. And that was kind of the model I was taught initially. I like what you said about being able to tangibly see. I mean, once I did my first house and there was $40,000 of equity or whatever. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, geez, I mean, that's a lot of money. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And granted it's equity and, you know, that's not cash in the bank, but sure. it's going to grow over time. And it was repeatable. And so I did, just like you said, I did the spreadsheet where I said, well, well how quickly can I do 10 of these? Absolutely. Right? How, build, how quickly can I build half a million in equity? Sure. And then, I mean, if that's on the table, how can I build a million dollar net worth like in a couple years from nothing? And that was very exciting to me, right? Extremely powerful. Um, Extremely powerful. Yeah. And, and just with little houses, a guy with no background in real estate, with no family money, with no special skills. I mean, look, I play the guitar pretty good, but sure. that's not going to translate to uh, you know <laughs> work or whatever, right? Sure, sure. So trying to find a way kind of for the average guy to build a million dollar net worth in a couple of years, like this is extremely powerful. Sure. And I became all consumed with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was houses. It was one house first year did one house rental house, mm -hmm. um, buy it with hard money, fix it, refinance out. Sure. There you go. That model worked a um, little bit of cash flow, equity, tax advantages, all the things we love about real estate. Sure. Uh, and then I ended up going on to do, you know, 10 of those. And then once I'd done 10, I said, well, um, we could start flipping these now. Flipping is kind of my least favorite investing sure. activity. It's just very risky and a lot of heart heartbreak. Um, however, I've done hundreds of them. Wow. Um, so, you know, then I ran into the kind of conundrum that a lot of real estate investors do where you go, well, okay, I know this real estate works. I know cash flow real estate investing works. I love it for all these reasons that we, that we all talk about. You know, it's a, it's a necessity for people. Um, you know, you're, you're providing a product that to a huge user base that's never going to go away. Um, it's, it's not very um, likely to be disrupted by technology or, or having Amazon sure. come in and buy all the rental housing on the planet. It's just not going to happen. Sure. Um, so for all those reasons, you know, had done it. But then back to that scale question and growing, it's like, I, I just said, Hey, I, I, I got the hang of this. I've built some net worth. Um, I love this model, but I don't see how I could 10 X this business. Like I, I, I don't want to, I don't want 200 houses. I just couldn't, you know, and, and fortunately I'd in, been introduced to some multifamily owners early on in my investing journey. And mm -hmm. 
I could not wrap my head around the, the numbers, right? I, sure. I couldn't, I'm like, how is this guy raising $5 million of other people's capital? I, I, I said, sure. I don't get it. Um, well, I don't see myself doing that, but I know by association, if I just hang around long enough, you know, back to that model concept, you find a model of something you want to do. Um, and so I had, a, you know, I had a goal for myself, a, a, you know, a net worth and an income goal and a lifestyle goal. And I so, was fortunate to, to befriend some people that were already there. Sure. And I just tried to spend time with them, you know, try, try to spend as much time as I could. And, you know, if you think about a four year degree, um, you know, most people are, including myself, very willing to volunteer for that, sign up for that sure. on <laughs> kind of no ROI projections. Sure, sure. Right, or very right. limited ROI projections, right. but to spend a few years hanging out with people that um, were successful, wealthy, multifamily investors, you know, it was a tremendous ROI to, to learn that model. And so eventually I bought a small multifamily by myself just to prove it to myself. And then I mm -hmm. partnered with a more uh, advanced co-GP. And then I was off doing my own deals after that. Very common strat, you know, very common sure. path for a lot of syndicators that um, start small or maybe partner and then that they parlay that into their into their own deals, and so pretty pretty classic path there for me. Sure, sure. And and then you rightfully said there, Devin, is that knowing your why. It's not that the answers are not there. Many times I like to say that it's not the resources. It's really the resourcefulness that Absolutely. kind of plays into it. Is that once you know your why, that as to okay, I want to do this X, and once you see some of those leading shining stars or your mentors for that matter, I mean, it's you can get it started. You can you know sort of shadow them, learn from them, and the rewards are far far greater than the four-year degree that you just alluded to. So awesome. So uh, David, help us understand. Um, how, how did your first deal came about? Well, my very first multifamily deal was, you know, it's not that exciting in retrospect as a six unit apartment complex on the South side of town in San Antonio that I managed myself. So, mm -hmm. um, it was just the bank. There was a, a local bank that I had done, a, um, some of my single family deals with, mm -hmm. and I forget our purchase price, but it was like in the range of a single family house. It sure. was not very expensive. So my equity on that deal was not huge and I could just write the check myself. And mm -hmm. then I was in multifamily and that was a big, um, that was a big mental sure. um, right. barrier removed for me, even if it was mm -hmm. just this little one. It was, uh, it was different than single family. And it was also pretty, pretty like rough property. You know, we had some drug issues and some tenant turnover and some police issues. And it really got me into like, boy, just, you know, put me right in the middle of it and kind of tested me on low stakes, right? No investor money, just me. Honestly, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, the returns as a percentage were fantastic as a dollar amount you know, it didn't make me millions of dollars, but sure. you know, I'll tell you what it did do though, was, was taught me a lot of things I didn't want to do. Sure. And it, it, it kind of gave me that next step. I mean, this whole journey for me has just been one foot in front of the other, you know, I mean, and nothing's come easy. It's just sure. been one little step in front of the other. And, and that little six unit was, a was an important step. And then after that, I had kind of the confidence and, and uh, to move into a 75 unit with some more experienced partners. And that was um, a very distressed property. It was a tremendous learning experience. Again, a lot more learning what I didn't want to do and sure. how I didn't want to spend my day. And sometimes it's important to identify 
where your strengths are not. And sure, sure. And, and, and let's, doing let's, let's dig in there, if I may, uh, Devin, sure. because a lot of times we talk about the success, the rent raises, the returns and stuff, right? A lot of times what doesn't get talked about is that uh, a lot of challenges that come, you know, the tenant issues, the property issues, or some of the uh, common issues, or perhaps the property management issues, right? L let's talk about your 75 unit as to, you know, what were your sort of your bad experiences that you kind of, uh, you know, learned that to not do those things and maybe move to the, uh, you know, to the brighter or the shiny and different properties, perhaps, uh, you know. So, I, I, I mean, it might be encouraging for listeners to listen that, hey, not do these 10 things and stay away from some of that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. The, the 75 unit is really kind of an outlier example of a complete war zone property. <laughs> um, and most of the other stuff, everything else we've done has been a lot more middle of the road. You know, maybe sure. might have some rough tenant base. You know, we, we might buy at 70% occupancy, take it down to 50 and back up and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, and that's fine. I, I really like that stuff. You know, sure. I like C-class properties, I like B-class properties too. It just kind of depends on what we what we come across in our uh, acquisitions. The 75 unit though was a complete disaster in, in every sense. I mean, it was um, probably 50% physical occupancy, you know, 20% economic. So you had a very few number of people paying. Sure. You had people living in there that hadn't had utilities on for six months. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was crazy. You had, um, you know, the manager, <laughs> The manager we had, we inherited her, God bless her. She was telling me about a property down the street that was run by a drug lord. That's who was the manager of the property and wow. made all the decisions. So like, mm -hmm. this is the kind of stuff we're playing with. Uh, you know, we had uh, every manner of drugs uh, on site, homeless, you know, drug dealing. We had a shooting there. We had... Um, we had, you know, somebody show up to the office, you know, butt naked in the middle of the day, dancing around. I mean, just, just crazy. Wow. And I kind of look back on all this fondly, right? Cause it sure. made money for investors and it was a, it was a heck of a ride while we were there. Um, you know, I would do a property like that again at a, at an incredibly low basis. Right. I mean, sure. I think a lot, basically anything can be overcome with a check, you know, sure. if you've got the sure. budget for it, do it. But you know, all things considered, we've had better returns on projects that were a lot less work, right? So sure. you kind of have to factor that in there. Like what's mm -hmm. the, what's the stress uh, or even the, even your physical safety, you know? Um, I remember my wife calling me and saying, are you, I'm seeing your property on the news. There's a helicopter. Are you on site? And you know, there's a shooting and I was like, oh, I'm actually at lunch. Thank goodness. But you know, that stuff's, yeah, you don't see that on the investor presentations with sure. it. Sure. with a 16 IRR, right? Sure. And granted, a lot of investors shy away from those properties for good reasons, right? Right. right. But I, I've done one and, I, and honestly, <clears throat> I'm glad we did it. I'm glad I was a part of it. Uh, it was a lot of work, rough tenant base, um, turned it into just a gem of a property. Uh, it's not far from my office. In fact, we sold it. Um, and and I, was I was talking to the owner recently about maybe buying it back from him. I don't know. Uh, cause, cause we did everything on it. I mean, sure. granite, stainless, new cabinets. It was really probably over-improved. So in terms of like takeaways for the listeners, we over-improved the property, uh, you know, with granite and stainless, uh, that was, that was too much, too much CapEx on that stuff for, for the ROI. Um, 
we, I mean, we were, you know, thank goodness we were well capitalized going in and that you just have to do that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a tricky balance because if you're syndicating, you're raising equity, you know, every dollar equity you raise, it's going to hurt your returns. But I mean, I've seen it and I'm sure you've seen it where owners just get into trouble. Any business really gets into trouble running out of money. So sure. The property's got to be well capitalized and the principles have to be well capitalized. You know, sure, the, absolutely. If, the principles need to be able to write a 50 or hundred thousand dollar check for something if need be. Right. I mean, right. I, we've never done a capital call on any of our projects and I, I never want to, you know, um, I think your principal that you're investing with needs to be well capitalized or somebody on the team does. Um, and, and so we, we, uh, I actually, I think on that property, we did end up making a loan, the, you know, the principles of 150 K to the property say, we want to go back to investors and, you know, what's going to be fine on the back end. We can loan six months, you know, uh, we can loan some money to get through some additional CapEx. We went over on our CapEx budget. So, mm-hmm. you know, just expect that the older the property is. Um, and then, um, you know, we, we had hired, and it's sometimes tough hiring, you know, the crews to do the work. Uh, somebody tried to, you know, had forged a check and tried to steal some money. So there's just wow. kind of some <laughs> em- employee issues there. I think it's just about everything you can imagine in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of issues on the property. But, you know, it's like those, uh, ah, it's so cliche, but those things really make you. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I, I mm-hmm. love those. And, and these are the like sort of the pretty and the rosy things uh, always get talked about on the podcast. But these are some of the sort of the don't do's that don't get talked about. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that. And, and Devin, it kind of ties into a related question now is that how do you select sub markets? Because as you rightfully shared, right? You can turn a property sometimes, but you cannot really effectively change a neighborhood unless you have like a like thousands of properties within very tight circle there, right? So I want to try to understand your philosophy around when you select a new property or you're looking at some some of the new properties to acquire now. How do you sort of vet the neighborhood in general? Sometimes you know we can change the property, but not really sort of change the neighborhood, right? Unless you have like thousands of properties within the same neighborhood, and you know have a good scale there. So, uh, so I want to you know understand your philosophy around like you know how you vet the uh, sort of the neighborhood in general. Like let's say if you're presented with a new property right now, right? You know you just shared that you had so many problems, uh, you know, stemming from the property and all the surrounding bad actors around the neighborhood right so uh, now when you look at new projects and new acquisitions how do you vet the neighborhood of sorts well we have um kind of the luxury of operating in one market mm-hmm. and for a long time and sure. i grew up here so sure. you kind of have those three pillars or legs to the table mm-hmm. i just go see it i mean frankly we're, we're targeting probably 320 assets in our market that we would mm. ever buy. Sure. And we, mm. we have some level of familiarity with all of them, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we don't know the asset uh, or we haven't seen it before, we don't know the owner. In a lot of cases, we know the owner, we know the property management company, you know, we know the broker that sold it. But if we don't intimately know it, we certainly know that the neighborhood, we flipped a house over there or something. I mean, I, I, I sure. so that's part of kind of our, 
I guess, unfair advantage that we're trying to continue to cultivate is just very deep knowledge on one market. So that aside, I like to go on the property at night and physically mm. walk it, you know, mm. and I think that gives me, it gives you a sense of things that I just don't think you're going to pull out of crime maps or, or other online data sources. So I like to sure. physically go and see who's on the property at 10 o'clock at night. I see. Uh, I see. And, and get a sense of it. And then beyond that, you know, we're going to look at crime stats. The lender's going to look at crime stats in the area too. Um, and it's a very, boy, it's, it's definitely art and science, right? Uh, and this is again, one of the reasons that we focused on one market because I can just go see it. You know, mm -hmm. I can go, I can go, uh, shop the property. You know, I joke that I, I take my wedding ring and my watch off and I park around the corner and then I, walk, you know, put on a baseball cap and walk to the property and go shop it. And then it's always funny, you know, two months later when you buy it and you walk in and the leasing agent's like, Hey, <laughs> I, sh <laughs> I showed you the unit. You didn't sign the lease. You made my numbers look bad and now you're buying it. So, um, I, I like that on-site component, right? Um, sure. and it is very tricky to see, I mean, real estate is, this is part of the advantage of real estate is it's not a commodity, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very much each asset is its own thing. You know, we looked at a, a property I own that is a C-class property in a C area. And, mm -hmm. you know, we looked at an asset literally across the street, several hundred yards away, you know, and it was a, it was a built 10 years later and was much nicer construction and just like a completely different asset. And, but they were kind of across the street from each other. So, mm -hmm. There's certainly a lot of variability there, um, but you do want to look at the broader little submarket, you know, maybe a mile radius or whatever to see, you know, are we swimming upstream here? <laughs> are we trying to be, uh, uh, you know, this amazing property in an area that's just never going to command those rents? So I think you have to be very realistic about your rent, your rent bumps. You know, one property we had where we, I did not feel confident about big rent increases. But mm -hmm. what we did have on the property was all bills paid, mm -hmm. which represented about $200,000 a year of, of expenses. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, we think we can, we think we can turn this from an all bills paid property, but we can't raise rents. Mm -hmm. We can't do both because sure. that's like a $200 Delta, sure. you know, with utilities and the rent increase. We're not getting a $200 effective rent increase, but we can get utilities off the property if we renovate the units. So, you know, we had a unit that rented for $750 before and we rented it, renovated it, and it rented for $760 now, you know, like no rent premium, but we got rid of the utilities, which is effectively like a hundred bucks. So I see. You know, it all drops to NOI. It's the same thing, you know, in NOI. And that worked in an area where I did not feel confident about pushing rents, right? I see. Um, mm -hmm. It's just too easy. And we all fall into the trap of building these Excel models where I mean, you make the Excel say anything you want, right? Sure, sure, sure. So, and uh, speaking of that, uh, Devin, like help us understand, you know, like some of the value adds that you look at, right? You know, um, how do you sort of, uh, you know, go about, uh, you know, making sense of that, okay, I want to do kitchen improvements or bathroom improvements or common hallway improvements that will result into, uh, you know, sort of X dollar premium rent increase and stuff like that. So give us some understanding or your philosophy about how you kind of think about it or go about uh, doing some of those uh, sort of value add improvements. 
Yeah, absolutely. We have a fairly straightforward approach. I think one is, you know, you, you just got two buckets, right? You got your exterior bucket and your interior bucket. Sure. Your exterior bucket is, is tough to derive an ROI from. I mean, you know, mm. you're going to do a monument sign and uh, stripe the parking lot or do solar screens and you're going to spend a hundred grand and there's not a direct correlation to rents, but sure. we know it's going to help us uh, overall and beautify the community. And then the lenders might be asking for he might be requiring some of that stuff, you know, sure. mm-hmm. buy a property, you get these lender required repairs in, in many cases. Right. So mm-hmm. we kind of put that all in the exterior bucket. Mm-hmm. We just have to do it. It might be three, $400,000 on a property. Mm-hmm. Then on the interior bucket, then we can be a little more granular. And, and, and the takeaway is, you know, I'm looking for a 20% ROI on a component, right? I so see. if I'm mm-hmm. spending I'm actually looking for a lot better than 20%, but I'm looking for 20% as a, as a minimum. Sure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's going to determine if we do a backsplash, you know, Mm -hmm. if we do a backsplash, can we achieve 30, 40% ROI Mm -hmm. on that specific component? If Mm -hmm. we do flooring and paint, and appliances. And so we just kind of have a menu. Now, thankfully in multi-fit, we've done a lot of uh, house flipping with, you know, sure. or just kitchens and over the top fixtures and everything. And multifamily is not that. I mean, if you've seen one interior renovation, you kind of seen them all, right? We're doing vinyl sure. plank, two-tone paint, uh, maybe brush nickel fixtures. Um, you know, we were talking before we started recording about a material supply company that we sure. both know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they have like, I don't know, 15 SKUs. Mm-hmm. that's it. Like right. that's, that's going to take care of you for 10,000 apartment units you could do with those 15 SKUs. So pretty simple uh, approach there, but you know, we're just going to run it in our model and say, Hey, how many can we do a month? Mm-hmm. How much are we going to spend? Mm-hmm. And what's the ROI per unit? So, you know, if we're going to spend um, $4,000 on a hundred dollar rent premium, mm-hmm. we'll get a $1,200 annualized Sure. Divided by our 4,000 that we spent and that's a 30% ROI. So we would say, Hey, that's something that we, that we want to go do. So that's, that's how we treat that. And, um, we just try to build a model of kind of, especially the first year is really important. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, we, we want to build a model. How many units can we get into and renovate and what, what's our rent premium? And of course the lender is going to want to see that too, right? We're going to need to check in with the lender and, and show them that, that stuff. Um, but, you know, we, we, we're going to build our year one budget month by month. Mm-hmm. And then after year one, typically, or maybe 18 months in, then you've got some, a um, little bit of stabilization and you're not spending as much, uh, as much capital improvements. But really that, you know, I was just running uh, some numbers today with our uh, VP operations on the management company for a property where we're going to take over. We're reviewing the underwriting and, you know, I remember saying a few times in the conversation, all we're trying to solve for here is net investor returns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if I can hit my preferred return, let's say 7% to investors, and we can hit an equity multiple over the whole period, like that's the interest rate can do this and the value adds can move around. And there's, there's 50 variables we're going to play with. Sure. But mm-hmm. All that matters is net return to investors. And if we can get that to work, that's a deal we want to do. If we can't get that to work, we're, we're out. So it kind of makes it easy, right? In that sure. you're not going to agonize over a deal if the net return to investors doesn't work. Now, if you're a cash buyer or it's, you know, a couple of partners, different, different, but for syndicators raising capital, we, we have a product to sell and that product is net investor returns. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how does that discussion go about, as you said uh, there, Devin, that, um, you know, 
the end goal is definitely offering enough returns and sort of exiting with a sale with success and you know everybody leaves happy but from your shoes looking at you know a lot of deals and vetting all different parameters you know i'm i'm curious to know i have never uh, you know had guest talking about uh, that type of very discussion that uh, hey you, you know the value adds or some of the other management challenges that perhaps may pr uh, present itself uh, how, how does that discussion go like you know what are some of the things you are looking at from your vantage point yeah um we just want to make sure that that the numbers are opex numbers that we're putting in a place that our management company can meet or beat Sure. And we just want real numbers there. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we, mm -hmm. and then we want cash cushion, right? We want sure. operating capital. Well, we want our CapEx, you know, it's going to be half a million or a million bucks. Sure. We want our operating capital in there mm -hmm. and then want a reserve, you know, as mm -hmm. much as we could possibly get, you know, if I sure. could put 300 K in a reserve, I, I would, right. It's just as mm -hmm. far as you can push it and still feel like, um, you can hit the investor returns. So that's going to give you some cushion on the, on the operations and then mm -hmm. just, just no stuff's going to happen. Now there is kind of a spectrum, right? On the cleaner properties, um, it's a, it's a different clientele and that you just run into, run into a lot less issues, but mm -hmm. regardless with any multifamily project, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be issues. So you just, you just budget for it. Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Devin, um, as big as your company is and you have done multiple projects now, right? Um, how are you sort of getting the newer uh, properties, meaning, you know, the new deals coming to your door? Is that through primarily through broker relations or is that some off market marketing that perhaps you may be doing uh, with your group? Really all of it is a broker bringing us a deal first mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. and just saying, Hey, we've done a deal with you you know, we've all bought and sold deals and it's a circus putting it out there. Right. Sure. And, mm -hmm. and, and Hey, maybe you put the, the, put it out to market and you get a lot of interest and you get the highest offer for sure. Sure. But also, you know, certainty of execution is the number one thing. It's certainty sure. of execution. Number one, then price number two, then terms number three, sure. you know, and as a seller, that's, you know, I don't really care what we get in contract for. Right. Right. I fall out of contract and go back and forth, waste everybody's time, waste the staff's time. I mean, you know, show me certainty of execution and, sure. and we can do it. So that's what we've really built our reputation around is certainty of execution. Mm -hmm. Because of that, you know, we're, we're getting deals just, you know, that, that nobody, literally nobody else is looking at. Right. And so mm -hmm. we found that, Hey, let's just keep these relationships going. Cause there's in any market, well, in our market, there's only a handful of brokers trading. Absolutely. Stuff. You know, I just, and once we've done deals with them and we have a relationship, uh, that's again, an unfair advantage, you know? Um, so that's how we're doing it. We've considered doing, you know, direct to owner marketing. The challenge is, um, and we've never bought a, a large multifamily deal directly from owner. The challenge is, you know, we could spend a lot of time, energy and money doing that, building a relationship. Sure. And, and that owner says, okay, I'm finally ready to sell, but you know, I think I'm going to take it to this big brokerage and see if they could shop it. You know, maybe there's somebody in California that wants to overpay for this thing. And then, <laughs> then you're like, well, okay. All your work is gone to win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we just don't want to play that game. I mean, if, if there was, um, if there was 10 of me, you know, maybe, but 
there's just limited hours in the day and it's just a lot easier to leverage um broker relationships broker relationships sure. especially on the buy side because the seller is basically paying it i mean i guess you're paying it's all baked into the number but sure. um you know that that just lets us have a i call it fish jumping in the boat you know instead right. of being out there fishing there's jumping in the boat we decide if we want it or not so absolutely mm -hmm. and that's kind of how the game's played too mm -hmm. you know um and so not to say that we won't ever procure a deal off market direct from an sure. owner mm -hmm. but um the model we have with broker relationships seems to be um what's yielded all, all our deals so far and there's no reason to think we can't just uh, keep that up Sure, sure. Now, uh, uh, Devin, as big as your company has become, right? You started, uh, as you shared, that you had a uh, six-unit apartment building that you bought, like a real small. You got that got you started. Then you jumped into a seventy-five unit. Now, I, as I'm aware, that your group is doing uh, lots of bigger deals into two hundred, three hundred unit properties and things like that. All this requires a lot more equity and a lot more, you know, passive investors and stuff. Uh, share share with our in, uh, with our audience, uh, Devin, as to how you sort of, uh, you know, grieve the passive investors and had more and more capital uh, bring into your company and so that you can uh, go and do the bigger deals. Uh, share with our listeners, like uh, what what some of the steps you took over the years. Certainly. I think over the years is, uh, you know, worth repeating there because it's, <laughs> it's been a slow organic build. I wish there was an easy button there. Maybe there is, I'm not aware of it, but my path was, and it, this may be encouraging to somebody listening that's starting out. Um, none of this came easy or came from a windfall. I mean, this sure. is really kind of one investor relationship, 50 or a hundred thousand dollar investment at a time. Um, sure. mm -hmm. and I didn't have a, uh, you know, finance background or, or any, although I am a, you know, I'm an Excel and finance geek and I like that stuff, but sure. my mm -hmm. point is I didn't have a capital raising background. Mm -hmm. uh, I did have a sales background, which, which was good, but sure. my first capital raise was on a single family home where I had a private lender. And that was a big turning point early on in my career where somebody would, lend $150,000 with the first lien and no banks, just him and I. Sure. And mm -hmm. it was a little cheaper for me. It was much easier to work with him than with a lender. It was a good return for him. So, wow, okay, this really works. So I ended up doing a bunch of those and ended up doing millions of dollars of those just kind of one off. And that really allowed me to get comfortable with the idea of raising capital sure. so that by the time I was getting into multi-million dollar capital raises, mm -hmm. I could say to myself, well, I've already raised millions of dollars. It's just been a hundred thousand at a time on different deals. And I've never lost anybody's money. We've always performed. Cause that was really, you know, in this whole journey of mine, that's been the biggest concern, right? Is mm -hmm. you're taking people's capital and you have to do what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. And so, mm -hmm. That's gotten easier for me over the years and it's, it's easier at having a track record, but it took years for me to build up that, that, um, you know, the kind of relationships and, and then at some point, you know, um, when you're delivering these returns, then people are bringing friends. And, sure. um, I've also had a newsletter now for several years that goes out once a month where 
people can get on there that I meet at a conference or an event or something, or somebody will refer their friend to the newsletter and they may be on there for six months, just kind of watching. You know? <laughs> oh, I, I see you guys have done a lot of stuff. Looks like maybe I'm interested in having a call to learn about it. And then they have a call very, it's been a very organic process though. You know, <laughs> we've looked at private equity groups that can write, you know, $3 million check and things like that. But I, I keep hearing these horror stories about how you get to the closing table and they change it up on you. And right. so I just, you know, in, in it, we have this uh, single point of failure, uh, you know, concept. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like somebody writing a giant equity check is, is certainly a single point of failure. Sure. And, mm -hmm. and so when you have a larger group of investors in a syndication, if one $50,000 investor says, Oh, you know, something came up, I can't invest. It's really almost like a non-issue. And I sure. like that model as much um, as pros and cons to kind of any equity approach. But, you know, short answer to your question is just been one kind of investor at a time uh, over, over years. You know? Sure, sure, sure. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, share with the listeners, uh, Devin, regarding your podcast, uh, you know, which guests come on. Uh, I know I have personally, you know, listened to several of your episodes and I, I have personally enjoyed as well. Yeah, we have a podcast. My, my company um, is called DJE Texas Management Group. The podcast is simply called DJE Podcast. And it's a weekly show where we pretty much focus on multifamily investors and, and operators. You know, that's the space we play in. Sure. Occasionally, we'll have attorneys or different, different folks on there. But um, I like it. You know, I like sharing ideas. Um, and then I like meeting people because everything I've been able to do has been through through some kind of cooperation, you know? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I always take it back to this example of like, uh, how did humans become dominant? I mean, we're, we're like worthless in the animal kingdom, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. But you get four or five of us together cooperating and we could kill a lion. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of talk about that multifamily, like we get a few of us together cooperating and we kind of set some baselines for expectations and some sure. trust. We can go take down a $10 million building that none sure. of us could do on our own. And so right. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, you know, building your team, building your network. I like to be a passive investor too. I like to lead our own deals and that, you know, the more people I meet and connect with, it gives me more opportunities. It gives them more opportunities. So I love the podcast for, for that aspect. Uh, and then there's not an episode where I don't, I don't learn something out of it as well. So. Very true. Very true. And, and just hearing you speaking, uh, Devin, and sort of the thought process that you go down and the, you know, sort of that, uh, different quadrant thinking that you do and how you break it down and you combine it on different ways. I, that's the, personally, I have enjoyed that over the years listening to you and I enjoyed the, this as well. And I, I definitely agree with you that each guest that comes on, you learn more. So definitely doing a podcast just like this. And as you do yours as well, it's always a shared learning experience. So uh, good. Thank you for your time, uh, Devin. Um, I look forward to, you know, having you as well on some future episodes with uh, some of your bigger deals. Uh, kindly share with our listeners, Devin, as to, you know, how they can sort of reach you and learn more about your company and your podcast as well. Sure. Well, if you're in San Antonio, let's go get some Mexican food. So those are, those are you that are not in San Antonio. Um, you can go to our website. It's djetexas.com. And there's all kinds of ways to contact us there and, and connect. Um, we're real big on the educational stuff. And, um, you know, we love connecting with folks. So. 
Thank you. Thank you, Devin. I appreciate it. And listeners of the podcast can log on to uh, premiumcashflow.com where, um, you know, reputed guests like Devin come, uh, come on and share their expertise. And if you're interested in passive investments, uh, kindly register yourself using invest with us and we can jump on a short phone call and understand your sort of goals and which markets and different things you're looking to do. And, uh, you know, uh, see if we, if we are a good fit for you. So good. Thank you for your time, Devin. I look forward to, uh, you know, chatting with you uh, regarding your future projects as well in future. It's been a outstanding. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.